Welcome back to the 66th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, two of which are discussing the cultural decay, the rot, so to speak, at the center of American culture and society. And then we have one talking about new ESG regulations in the UK. Is the U.S. going to follow suit? We'll see. But let's first discuss what's going on there. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive. We're going to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So anyone looking at American society from the point of view of the past couldn't really imagine, at least in my opinion, where we are today. We have decreasing church attendance, an increase in single parents across the country, people jumping in bed with one another just for the fun of it. And whether you think these are good or bad changes, they are drastic changes that have an impact on our society. I would argue that they have a negative impact, but I want to know what your opinion is. You know, I would love to see if I'm in the minority on this one. Am I just a person with a stick up the butt who yearns for the good old days of traditional American values? Or is there a little bit of something to what I'm saying here? I'd love to hear your opinions. Tell me about them in the comment section. All right, let's jump into our first article from the Washington Times. Culture moves away from God, sparking chaos, mental problems, and unhappiness. So Bill Maher, of all people, spoke about the decline of America on his show this week, Real Time with Bill Maher. And the author uses this conversation, this topic that Bill Maher was talking about, as a a springboard to really understand or at least try to display the separation of church and state argument and how in the U.S. we may have taken it a little bit too far. Yes, I know, I know. It sounds like old men really reminiscing about the past, you know, what people used to be like, what culture used to be like. You know the good old days. Billy, you remember the good old days? Oh, yes, author of this article, I remember the good old days. And some people would argue that these people that are talking about the decay of culture really are arguing from a place of, well, we don't stand to benefit the most anymore. We're not in a culture anymore that is tilted towards men, and it's not in their favor. But the author really highlights a very different, important issue here. So the reason I brought that up is I want you to understand that that is a valid thought process, but we got to move past it for this discussion. We can have a separate conversation about that a different day, but this is on a different topic. So if you had those reservations, leave them aside for a minute so we can actually have a different conversation. So I'm going to start with a quote here from the article. Quote, We like to blame schools because they're an easy scapegoat. But our educational facilities, despite often perpetuating and fueling these problems, are merely exposing that our great societal or social experiment of dismissing God in place of ourselves is failing miserably. By all measures, 
Today's young people are in a dire predicament with mental health issues ravaging Generation Z. By some estimates, more than 27% of these younger Americans have said they have fair or poor mental health, with nearly half, 46%, claiming their mental health status is worse than before COVID began, end quote. And of course, people who don't want to hear this argument or they want to blame something else, they could say that COVID is the, the influence here. And yes, COVID is a contributing issue, but mental health problems have been on the rise in our generation, as a person from Gen Z, for a while now. And as someone who has seen the darkness and clawed my way back, it is an issue of purpose, in my opinion. When I was at one of my my lowest points. And yes, I understand. I am a 22-year-old. My points have not been as low as some others. I'm not trying to claim that. But when I felt useless, when I felt that my life had no meaning and I was questioning whether I even think it's worthwhile to be a part of the society, it was really an issue of purpose. I didn't know where I wanted to go. I didn't have, or at least I didn't feel as though I had an impact on other people's lives. I didn't feel like I brought joy to the people I interacted with. I felt as though I was lost. And it was only through forcing myself to take responsibility for some of my actions and understand that it's not all about, it's not all about me. At the end of the day, I can have a purpose that is not solely guided by my need, my wants, my desires. It could be family. For some people, it could be family-oriented. For some people, it could be spreading a message about health and fitness. For some people, it may just be bringing a smile to other people's faces. But we all need a purpose, and that's what I feel like this generation is really searching for, especially in an age of social media where there are so many fake lives, there are so many fake projections of what life can be. When people look to that, they aspire to that. They're not actually trying to have an impact on their community right in front of them or the people right in front of them. They're trying to have an even wider impact. And they kind of lose perspective. And they can sometimes feel like they lose purpose. And some people find purpose through those social networks. They find an audience that they feel like they can help, and they're not trying to exploit them for money. It's not all about them, but they actually want to help people. There are those that find purpose in that way. But a majority of these kids look on these social media apps. They look at other people's lives, feel like they're not living up, and they don't know how they can reach the levels that some of their favorite influencers have reached. And they feel like they have no purpose. So... That's what the author's kind of getting at in this first one, or at least that's my opinion. That's my take on why mental health has become a serious issue in our generation. And I think it's something that is widely discussed now, which is great. But I think the underlying roots of the mental health debate is always, well, what's causing you to feel your pain? What internal problems are causing you or what external factors are causing you to have your pain. And we're never willing to address, or at least I was never asked in therapy, so what do you think your purpose is? It was, no, what is your current issue? 
why do you think you have this issue? And even when I was ignorant and self-reflective and I just wanted to get out of the conversation, so I gave a baloney answer, the therapist said, oh, yes, that, that could be right because they're all about this cognitive behavioral therapy where you stop your thought process, your negative thought processes by counteracting them with good thought processes, which is not necessarily a bad thing. If you can stop your bad thought processes by training your brain to say, no, that's a bad thought process. We shouldn't be doing that. That's great. But at the end of the day, maybe we should start telling these kids that go into therapy, look beyond yourself. What can you do for others that will bring you joy? What can you do for your community, your family, rather than just coming into therapy and trying to solve your issues and your issues alone? And that's something else the author talks about here in a second. A second. And the author really does says as much about the, the purpose problem as well. Quote, the problem isn't just general authority. It's the recognition of an ultimate command, a divine Lord above mankind to which man's are, are responsible, humans are responsible. Mr. Sullivan is correct to say that there's a crisis of authority in culture and our schools. And the all-about-me culture feeds off this festering quagmire. But what we are really watching is a spiritual crisis on steroids. At some point along the way, America decided to strip away the ingredients of a reverent culture, axing prayer, morals, and Judeo-Christian principles. And, you know, that's one of the most important lessons, end quote. That's one of the most important lessons that Christianity tries to instill in you. You are not the center of the world. And secondarily, there's a benefit in this context. It's for those that are looking for purpose, it provides it. Correlation obviously does not equal causation, but isn't it interesting as church attendance has fell, as faith has declined, we see a rise in people reporting feeling lost, sad, or depressed. You know, I'm not trying to directly say that, oh, just because you believe in something bigger, that makes you better. Not necessarily. But having faith beyond yourself, having or acknowledging that the world isn't about you, you can't control everything, you can't micromanage your life down to every single detail. You cannot control other people. There's a bigger plan. There is someone even larger than us who is actually looking out for us, who is above us. That can be comforting to some people. And when people don't have that, when they think it's just nothingness at the end, you can become very contemplative. You can become very questioning. You can sit there and just wonder, What's the point of life if there's nothing afterwards? So the Christian ideals of heaven, Jesus sacrificing himself for his sin, our sins, these are ideas that provide comfort for people and allow them to live their lives in a way. Even if it's a little bit ignorant, you could argue that. You could say, well, you don't know that for a fact. You're just having blind faith and you're being ignorant and you're not asking important questions. But at the end of the day, if those people are living in a way that's more conducive to a happy life, is that a bad thing? And also when it comes to the purpose issue, there's a very well-defined purpose of any good Christian. Spread the faith. Make sure that God's word gets out there. That solves the purpose issue right there. And that's what a lot of people who didn't necessarily 
have a guiding light in life would turn to. Certain women who didn't want to get married, who didn't want to have families in the medieval ages, 1800s, even my great aunt, only 50 years ago, they didn't want to get married, but they still wanted to serve God and have a purpose. So they became nuns for men that didn't want to get married, who wanted to serve God in a pure form. They became monks in the past. If you look at certain Mormons, they go on their exodus, their journey as a teenager to spread the faith, to have diverse experiences. So that can be a purpose for some people. And even if it's a small purpose, even if you just say to one person a day, would you pray with me? That can be a fulfilling sense of purpose for some people. Is that the outright solution? I don't know. But I do think it's interesting that when we lose faith, when we lose church attendance, it has eventually, at least we've seen in the culture, that people are not as happy or satisfied with their lives. Now, there are other factors as well, which we will get into in this next article. But I think it's very, very important to highlight this factor. And maybe you can start questioning yourself. Do I really think faith will help me? Maybe faith won't help you. But I'll tell you now, it's helped a lot of people I know. It's helped me personally. So and when I was talking about the separation of church and state earlier, the reason that we've kind of pulled away why churches become less important is because the courts, well, the government, but the courts in specific, over time have taken the separation of church and state clause very, very literally. And that is why they've chipped away at the foundation of the American experiment, which is a faith-based society. And they've unmoored us from what has allowed us to thrive, faith, family, and freedom. And I say this because in the last 60 years, eh, more like 70, a lot of the cases that have come to the Supreme Court on this issue say, no, 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 it's a church issue. We as a state can't get involved, which seems to be an interesting argument. I'm not saying it's right or wrong because I don't necessarily understand all of the legal theories behind it. But that mentality of church and state have to be completely separate. We shouldn't have government politicians influenced by their religion, and we shouldn't have religion influenced by the politicians. That's unrealistic. We can have government politicians who go in who are very faithful people, who have certain values that they carry in from their faith that actually could be good to implement on a societal level. And just because they come from their faith doesn't mean that they're bad thought processes, bad regulations. And I think that's one of the mental hoops that people can't really jump through. They're like, no, 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 separation of church and state. We should not be a nation that has a whole bunch of Christian-based regulations and Christian-based rules. And I'll tell you now, I'm sorry to tell you if you don't know this, the founding of our nation was based on religious principles, not necessarily Christian principles, but the belief that there is something bigger. Our rights are endowed to us by our creator. Now, that is very general language. They're not trying to say God for a very specific reason, but that still implies there's something bigger than us. There's something bigger than us in this universe, and we are not the sole focus of it. We are a small piece of a larger whole. And if people can come to accept that and stop making everything in their life about them, oh, she slighted me, he slighted me, he didn't give me what I wanted, and realize that, oh, 
he was looking out for his best interest. He said something that may be a little mean. Maybe I was being a little pushy. It leaves room for you to acknowledge your flaws. And then life doesn't become as miserable because when you can acknowledge your flaws, you can improve. And when you can improve, you become better. And when you become better, in my opinion, uh, you get happier. All right, that's enough rambling for me about that one. Let's go to our second article talking about the cultural decay. And this one doesn't necessarily highlight the decay from the right, as that last article did. But this one highlights it from a left person's point of view. And I push back a lot in this article because this is one of the issues that I have always been very adamant about, or at least in the last three years as I've really come to understand the culture that we live in, or at least I've had a better glimpse of it being at college. This one comes from the Daily Beast. With Roe v. Wade gone, men will have a lot less sex. Quote, many of the old men who've paved the way for the legal unraveling of our daughter's humanity will be dead in 50 years. And honestly, thank goodness, because I fully plan to on outliving these clowns. I've got my dancing shoes shined up and ready to tear it up on some graves. However, the creepy fixation on the reproductive organs of girls and young women will live on in the conservatives of the future. There will be an epidemic of lonely men. Future old men will have had less sex than men in generations before, if they're having sex at all. Fewer of them will get married. They will have fewer children. Because women will decide, finally, that heterosexual sex just doesn't add enough to their quality of life to be worth the risk it introduces, end quote. So will forcing people to make more cautious choices with whom they participate in sexual activity cause less marriages? I don't know, maybe. Will it cause more lonely men? Probably. But the author acts as if men and women having less sex is a bad thing. And this is part of a particular worldview, which is you should be able to have as much sex as you want. You should be able to indulge in your desires as much as you want. And so, oh no, now we have to have more responsible people making more responsible choices. And now, wait, 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 they actually are going to have to face the consequences of their actions. Oh no, the horror. And this is where the cultural decay aspect comes in, in my opinion. Because if you want to have sex, go out and have sex. But you do so understanding the risk. And that's what this woman is talking about here. The women now understand the risk that not in all states, not in, not in all states, you'll be able to get an abortion. So now they have to understand the risk of, oh, if I go out and I'm a little bit promiscuous, or if a guy really comes on to me, I think he's cute, I want to have a good night with him, then they'll actually think about the consequences of their actions. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. The last author pulled out a quote from a gentleman talking about how they people in this generation have a problem with authority. And it's because the authority has never truly pushed back, has never really said, oh, well, no, you didn't do, you, you did something wrong here, Jimmy. You have to be punished. It's always... Mama coming in, helicopter mom saying, no, 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 Johnny, you're perfect. You didn't do anything wrong. The school just being mean. And, of course, that's one case out of others. If you had a mother like mine, that was not the case whatsoever. But there are those parents. 
And this is just another evolution in that stage of lack of responsibility. You can go out. You can have sex with five guys if you wanted to. You find out you're pregnant, you go get an abortion. Now, is an abortion a non, a, an emotionless affair? No. Does it come with some painful repercussions possibly, some, mel- uh, some mental health effects, some actual health effects? Of course. But those consequences are a lot, they affect you a lot less than the nine months of pregnancy plus a ch- bringing a child into this world in labor and then also having to raise said child. So we're trying to push off the consequences of our actions. I can have sex with whoever I want, and I don't have to worry about it. I can just have an abortion. And we can't just have abortion as a contraceptive. So if Dobbs, the repealing of Roe v. Wade, makes people actually sit down and consider, hey, maybe I should make a different choice. Maybe I shouldn't hook up with this guy tonight. Maybe I should see if he's actually someone I want to have a child with before we have sex. I think these are all good things. And I know I'm talking about the perspective from a guy, guy's point of view. But I'll also highlight a little bit later why this is actually good for men. And what I mean by that is, actually, I'll leave it till we get there because it's only one quote away. But I want to make sure that I'm not just saying, or people don't just think I'm bragging, oh, women need to be more responsible. No, guys need to be more responsible too. This is not a one-way street. There are two people that get involved in these acts unless it is unconsensual, which is absolutely horrific and should be punished in the worst way possible, in my opinion. But that's off topic. Quote, it sounds hyperbolic, but it's already happening. Young women across the country are already deciding in droves that having sex with men their age is not worth the trouble. This isn't being taken lightly. A healthy sex life can be an important component of overall mental and emotional health. But when it benefits one party at the expense of the other, can you blame the other party for opting out? Adding more risk to the equation hardly makes it more appealing and a more appealing option. Single, partnered, married, or some kind of brokers, FTX, Bahamas, penthouse, orgy, it won't matter. Every act of potentially proactive heterosex will carry huge potential consequences for any women involved, end quote. And there should be risk in the equation like I was talking about earlier. Our culture has drifted so far that we're actively promoting behavior that leads to higher single motherhood rates. And for those of you who argue abortion can alleviate that, I would argue if they didn't have sex with some person that they were not willing to get married to, or that they were not willing to raise a child with, then the single motherhood rate issue would be less of an issue. You wouldn't have to have that abortion because that your person that you had sex with is walking away or isn't involved in your life. So, it really talks about the culture that we are trying to cultivate here. Do we want a culture of responsible human beings who say, like in the 50s, oh, I knocked you up? Okay, we're going to get married now. We're both going to take responsibility for our actions. Or are we going to have a culture where it's, oh, I knocked you up? Well, I'll send the parental payments. I'll send the child care in the mail and, you know, you do your thing. I think that we have really shifted in the the idea of what sex means. Sex used to be 
about a loving bond between two people. Now it's used for the carnal desires that you have in the moment. Oh, I'm feeling a certain way. I really want something. So let me go out and just satiate that need. So not only is that highlighting the fact that we can't get past our human urges, which are normally not the best for us. A lot of people could just sit down and eat five pizzas during a day. They just, they're that hungry. They just want it that much. And I used to be one of those people. I take that back. I still am that people, that person. I could sit down and plow through five pizzas. No problem if I really wanted to, but we have to have will. We have to have restraint. And if appealing the Roe v. Wade decision and pushing the question of abortion back to the states is making people really be more considerate about the consequences of their actions, I think it's a good thing. And besides the current culture, no matter how pro-feminist it may appear, it really benefits horny men who don't want to take responsibility for their actions. And this is what I was talking about, how this will actually benefit men, or at least it will benefit the society, creating stronger, more responsible men, in my opinion. So do we really want a culture of men who are clearly unfit for fatherhood? Do we really want a culture of men who can simply say, oh, no, no, I had irresponsible sex with this one person. Now, you know what, just go get an abortion. I don't want to deal with it. I'm not going to take responsibility for my actions. Rather than sitting there and having a man who is actively contemplating, is this a person that I would want to have a child with? Am I willing to also risk having to raise that child? And let's be clear, this is an ideal situation where the man wouldn't walk away. But if we have that sense of responsibility in our culture and we say that, no, no, if you have sex with this person, it's more likely that you're going to have a child because you can't have an abortion, so you actually have to think about the consequences of your actions, then maybe we'll have more responsible men, and then there will be less men walking away. Now, that is speculation on my part, but I think that those two things are actually more in tandem than a lot of people really realize. These sort of values have been lost in modern America, the modern American society, and have begun, we've begun to see the consequences more single-parent households, more depression, obesity, and again, correlation does not equal causation, but it is one factor that doesn't help the situation. And to be clear, I know I talked about single-parent households. I'm not trying to just be mean to single-parent households. I'm not trying to say that we need to look down on them. I'm saying that at the end of the day, when you do not have two parents there or you don't have a proper structure, when you don't have an ideal structure that has been proven over thousands of generations from the people that came up in the Indus and the Mesopotamian Valley to basically the 1900s, when you don't have that system in place to raise a child, you're going to get less than optimal results. And we need to encourage men and women to stick together for their kids to raise them, even if they're not necessarily married, at least Raise them together and not in a single-parent household because it has terrible effects on the children. And those children will go on to raise their own children, and it just leads to a cycle because they see that, oh, well, my mom was a single parent. It worked. I can make it work. And I'm not saying that we should stop it. There are some single mothers and fathers who could really do their best. They do a great job, and they raise their kids right. 
But at the end of the day, there is an ideal standard, and it's the one that's been working for thousands upon thousands of generations of humans. All right, we'll jump to our last article really quickly. This one is from Bloomberg. UK-USG rules set higher bar than EU's, says a group uh, with 19 trillion pounds in assets. So if you're someone who's been following the cultural issues or a business person, there's no doubt that you've heard about ESG. It's a topic that has been covered before, actually, on this podcast. And the basic outline is economic social governance. And it's a metric for companies to measure against, to see if they're responsible companies, if they're sustainable companies. In the UK, it's implemented standards for ESG and created categories to help investors know which funds are investing in sustainable companies. Quote, the UK financial watchdog unveiled its ESG rules for funds in October, with the consultation concluding Wednesday. Sanchez Sadden, the FCA's director of ESG, told Bloomberg and the UK was trying to sidestep the kind of confusion that was upended in the EU's fund market due to its disclosure categories, known as Article 6, 8, and 9. Sadden said the upshot is that the EU has been left with an ESG fund consent rather than actually a reflection of different things or different consumers. The UK's proposed ESG labels, sustainable focus, funds that can use the label if they invest mainly in assets that achieve a high standard of sustainability. Sustainable improvers, a label intended for investment in assets that may not be sustainable, but in which the fund aims to help improve. Or sustainable impact, a label that is reserved for funds that can prove their target solutions to social and environmental challenges. So they're trying to create an example of the right way to label and identify these companies as sustainable. And right now, this is in the private sphere, so to speak, this financial firms. But there are companies like BlackRock that are trying to bring this over to the public company sphere here in the United States. And they give out ESG scores. And my question always comes down to what happens when the government gets involved. What happens when the government starts saying, well, you need to have this certain ESG score in order to be a favorable company. It could basically be the government's way of guiding investors towards certain companies and saying that we don't like other companies because they are maybe anti-government. They have different values than the government. So I think it can be dangerous to put these sort of economic social governance scores on them rather than just having financial metrics saying, oh, it outperformed this, its rate of return was this, its alpha factor was this, its beta coefficient was this, beta's risk, so how much risk did that fund have? When we have these solid metrics that are numerical-based rather than socially, economically, and whether we like the governance structure of their company-based, we have solid grounds to compare companies. When we have ESG, it's something that's a little bit more subjective because you can't necessarily measure all of the societal benefits a company brings. And that's why I think this ESG score is dangerous and it's being pushed by people who just want more control over the markets or they just want to have more influence over what happens in the market. And I think it's dangerous when you have organizations that are working with the UK government coming out and creating these labels. When does it happen in the U.S.? I'm a little concerned about it, but that's 
Just my paranoid side coming out. All right, I know I blew through that one, but let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from the animal rescue site. Rescue sloth embraces beagle friend in sweet hug. So one combination I didn't think I would see or be talking about is a sloth and a dog. But the internet is a beautiful thing. Quote, in the video shared below, you can see Chewy reach down and caress Ellie's face before the two embrace each other. Ellie the beagle doesn't back away even a little when Chewy reaches down with his large claws to touch the dog, end quote. And Ellie is a very trusting dog. You know, if I saw those big claws coming my way, I don't know if I would be so calm, if I'm being honest. Quote, in fact, the dog seems to encourage the embrace by nuzzling the sloth's hand and pushing closer. It's so sweet and shows just how much they care for one another. They may not be from the same species or have much in common, but love and friendship really knows no bounds. And they're a beautiful example of that. End quote. I couldn't agree more. All right. And then if you want to read any of these articles or you want to see any of the cute videos from this article or photos, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button on YouTube on any of the other podcast sites that we are now available on. They will be down in the description and you should be able to access those articles. And with that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.